it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through right it. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccine are available to millions of Americans and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. It's Wednesday, which means coming up in about an hour, we'll have uh, our weekly roundtable armchair politics for two hours of commentary and analysis about local, state, and national headlines in politics and current events. With our roundtable regulars, uh, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, they'll be joined by political operative Bobby Clayton Walton. That's coming up uh, in about an hour, but uh, this first hour, we're going to talk about a, uh, a new book with um, University of Virginia Darden School of Business, uh, Business Administration professor Michael Lennox. He is the co-author of The Decarbonization Imperative, Transforming the Global Economy by 2050, and he joins me by phone. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for uh, having me today. Um, I'm not even sure where to begin, Michael. I'm not, you know, used to uh, business administration professors talking about decarbonization. Well, I think you know the the, the, you know, the the first point we were trying to uh, to help here with is I think climate change can be so overwhelming, uh, and when we think about you know what what can we do to to make progress on it. So one of our hosts with the book 
was to kind of break it down into its constituent parts. Um, so the book is structured around five major emitting sectors. We look at the what we call scope one emissions, where the emissions actually occur. So uh, not surprisingly, things like transportation, electrical generation, uh, buildings, um, things that probably get a little less attention, uh, industrials like the production of steel and cement, and then last but not least, agriculture, which is a significant emitter on its own. And then what we try to do is in each of these different sectors, try to understand where are we now in terms of new technologies, uh, the opportunities to decarbonize, and then what could be done to try to accelerate that decarbonization process. Well, transforming the global economy by 2050. Why 2050? So uh, listening to what the climate scientists tell us uh, in terms of greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere, if we want to keep uh, global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius or at the very least 2 degrees Celsius, which is what was set in the Paris Accord, we're effectively working down kind of a stock of global greenhouse gas emissions. And so as we continue to emit, that time frame gets um, shorter and shorter to where we have to get to net zero emissions. Um, 2050 is where the IPCC recently soon we would need to decarbonize. But every year that we continue to actually increase emissions, that date gets shorter and shorter. And so 2050 might already be too optimistic. It might be more like 2040 that we'll have to decarbonize if we want to, again, keep it below the two degree uh, level set in the Paris Accords. And, and now this is um, confusing to me in, in some ways because it, first of all, there's there's this pushback to whether or not global warming is is man-made has that been pretty well resolved i think that's been resolved in the science community for a long time uh whether in the general public uh and in the political sphere it's been resolved is uh remains to be a question um it generally tends to be a u.s problem uh, not necessarily one where there's lots of questions being asked about the uh the reality of climate change in other parts of the world. Um, uh, so that still lingers, but again, the science community has been you know, universal on this for, for decades. How Have we made any progress? And, and I guess I'm thinking that, you know, maybe in uh, countries like the U.S. and China that, that have a lot of uh, carbon emissions, um, for every little bit that we do, is it being replaced in developing countries as they build up their infrastructure? I think we have you know two two trends, of course, uh, increasing global population, uh, which continues, uh, and then economic development, which at least historically uh, tended to lead to greater greater carbon emissions or greater greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way, though. And we've seen, especially some advanced economies, at least on a per capita basis, start to reduce um, their carbon footprint, uh, if you will. I think what we try to do in the book is rather than just look at kind of aggregate levels of emissions, is to look at technology and technology shifts. Um, we lay out early in the book what a likely decarbonized future would look like. Um, not surprisingly, it would be you know, 100% electric vehicles. Um, it would include heavy use of renewables in our electrical generation. We kind of go down the list there. And so one of the questions we're asking is, you know, where are we in terms of the economic viability of these different technologies, uh, in terms of the efficiencies of these different technologies, 
And then once again, asking the question, all right, what levers could be pulled from a policy perspective to help us get to those types of um, kind of major transitions across a wide number of sectors? When you talk about 100% uh, electric-powered vehicles, where does the electricity come from? Well, this is the thing. I think uh, a lot of what people are finding is we're going to need to electrify a lot of processes that currently use fossil fuels. So that includes vehicles. It also includes the built environment. So the you know heating and uh, uh, cooking and the like could be electrified. There's a lot of industrial processes that currently use fossil fuels that could potentially be electrified. Now, that, of course, puts a lot of weight on our electrical grid to also have to decarbonize. So it is absolutely true that if we electrify vehicles but do not decarbonize the electrical grid, um, we, we haven't solved the problem. But the fact is we need to do both. We, we need to both decarbonize uh, transportation and decarbonize the electrical grid. So again, this is a heavy lift. This is going to take quite a bit of effort globally to get us to that point. Now, as you pointed out, Michael, the, um, the science community has been, you know, calling out the, the alarm on climate change for decades. And businesses were kind of rejecting that in favor of the status quo, the things that are making them money. They don't, you know, they're reluctant to to change. Um, but has that, that reluctance begun to change with, uh, you know, business leaders? Are, are they beginning to look to new technologies and look at doing what they do differently? And is that because of increased consumer demand to do so? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we can't look at business as being monolithic. Um, a lot of the concern and raised about um, efforts to kind of fight the climate science and the like, not surprisingly, has come out of the fossil fuel industry. Sure. They have a vested interest in protecting their current you know, status quo. Uh, and unfortunately, that, that continues moving forward. Um, but some of these newer industries are viable industries of themselves and have opportunities, um, you know, to help with this transition. You know, solar and wind are, are large and growing industries. Um, electric vehicles are interesting because I think where you really get a tipping point and where we're kind of fast approaching that tipping point is that as we drive down the cost, especially of batteries, we're able to suddenly have vehicles that what I like to say might win on the con current um, conditions of merit. It's not necessarily the consumers are buying green. It's just simply they want the best car at the lowest price available. Increasingly, that is looking like electric vehicles. Um, and I'm not trying to be Pollyanna here. There's still a way to go until we get to that point. Um, but the trajectory is very positive for that type of transition. Uh, the nice thing is when you get that type of transition, then you're not relying on the vagaries of, of kind of consumer demand um, to try to drive these types of changes. As technology continues to grow and we see more AI, especially in the areas of manufacturing, and it's, it's creating less jobs and maybe less need for people to even have cars that, that could uh, use mass transportation, um, trains and other ways of conveyance, um, are we going to spend too much time trying to hang on to 
the idea of everybody having a car and driving to work every day, or should we be moving beyond that? Well, I think there's there's two things. Um, first, you know, it's interesting in the auto sector. We, we in essence have two disruptions that are taking um, somewhat simultaneously. Though I think the electrification, the EV side, is is further afield, which is electrification of vehicles. Um, but then the second one is autonomy and autonomous vehicles. And so there's a lot of efforts going into that as well. So exactly to your point, um, there is a vision, at least for an autonomous future in which car ownership would be perhaps uh, more like ride sharing, like we see with an Uber and the like, you don't need to own your own car. Um, I suspect we'll see, those are trends we've seen already, for example, here in the U.S., especially for those living in urban environments, that might be accelerated. The challenge, of course, is so much of our lifestyles are baked into our kind of physical infrastructure, you know, where we've built our homes, where we work. Um, it's interesting, of course, with COVID, there's been some kind of grand rethinking about how we live our lives, right. how we spend our time commuting to work and the like. And so I do think there's an opportunity right now for there to be some consideration of this. Uh, and, and those things could be ways in which we reduce some of our carbon. I'll give you just a quick another example here. Yeah, um, a lot of businesses now are rethinking business travel. Um, so the idea that you need to send your employees, you know, flying around the world, either to conduct sales or to go to meetings and the like, um, that's being questioned. Uh, and so there's some obviously positive benefits in terms of lifestyle, in terms of efficiency of the work time you have. But obviously, there's also potential for lowering your carbon footprint if you're not, again, jumping in a car to go to the airport, to jump on a plane, to travel halfway across the world. So, there, you know, I think there is some hope for kind of changes in consumption patterns here, um, especially in the wake of COVID. Where are we in the process? Have we, have we made any process, or are we still standing at the, at the starting gate waiting to take off? Well, again, I think this is why a sector-based approach uh, is helpful. Um, again, as you can probably sense, I am relatively optimistic that a disruption in terms of electric, electrification of vehicles is proceeding apace. It's still going to take, you know, decade-plus for that transition to kind of fully uh, manifest itself. But the trends are very positive. There's also been a fascinating story in terms of renewable energy. Uh, the prices of solar and wind have drastically reduced in the last a decade or so, to the point that in many applications, solar is actually on par with, if not lower cost than, for example, natural gas. All of this is very positive for making a transition of our electrical generation to renewables. Of course, there's other challenges there. Uh, we have the intermittency problem. The sun doesn't always shine. The wind doesn't always blow. And so likely what we're going to need is a combination of renewables with storage, likely battery storage, in combination of what we call smart grid because of the possibility and the potential of what we would call a distributed electrical system. So instead of having a few thousand large electrical generation plants providing your electricity, suddenly, you know, each one of us might have a solar panel on our home or a solar panel on a retail establishment, and you have millions of point sources of electricity. And as demand goes up and down over the course of the day, there are ways you could store it maybe in your electric vehicle in the garage, then use it when you're using it in the home uh, and create some dynamic efficiencies with our electrical system. Michael, so all of that's going to require I have, significant infrastructure investment. Yeah. I, I have to take a short break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes? Sure. All right.
Hello, we'll be right back. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Bye from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. 
and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about uh, a new book called The Decarbonization Imperative, Transforming the Global Economy by 2050, with um, Michael Lennox from uh, the University of Virginia Darden School of Business. He is a co-author of the book and joins me by phone. Michael, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Absolutely no worries. Um, We were talking about you know where we are in the process are we um closer to the beginning closer to the end closer to the beginning of the end as winston churchill (laughs) might say um where are we in the process yeah so i was saying you know transportation i think there's some very good positive signs that we'd be able to make a, a transition here electrical generation there's at least a path forward but it's going to take substantial, substantial infrastructure investment to make such a transition. Um, As we get to other sectors, it gets a little more difficult. Uh, The built environment's an interesting one in that there are already commercially viable alternatives to electrify. As I said before, drive everything to electricity, and then you've got to decarbonize electricity. Um, The problem, of course, with the built environment is retrofits. You know, homes and businesses and commercial real estate that has been built with certain infrastructure like a uh, propane uh, heater or a natural gas heating system and having those replaced with with something like a heat pump or electric um, unit. Um, How do we get that to take place? Again, it's a large infrastructure investment to make that occur. And then we move into things like industrials. Um, Steel and cement and petrochemicals come to mind. Uh, Steel and cement are, are the backbones of our built environment. Uh, both of those create greenhouse gas emissions in their production, uh, and it will be hard to, to remove those. The good news is there is work to create, like, for example, green cement, try alternative processes from Portland cement uh, to make, that, uh, make it actually a carbon sink where it absorbs carbon dioxide as it cures. Um, but again, they're not necessarily commercially viable yet. And then last but not least is agriculture, and there's a whole host of issues with agriculture that are going to be very, very difficult to, uh, difficult to address, and we're a long way, I think, from, from decarbonizing our agriculture sector. Who has the greatest responsibility for taking the lead on trying to transform the global economy by 2050? Is it government? Is it business? Is it John Q. Public? Yeah, you know, I have a background as a systems engineer, and I very much view all of these things as a system that's interlocking. And so I think the answer is all of the above, uh, and all are going to have to be part of the solution if we're going to make progress here. Um, I think there's also a question, even globally, you know, who takes the lead versus, let's say, developed countries versus lesser developed countries. Our perspective is very much one of of technological shifts. Um, One of the nice things is innovation that takes place in one part of the world can diffuse fairly easily uh, in a global economy to other parts of the world. So, for example, again, if we're able to drive down the cost of electric vehicles by innovating battery technology, one would hope that that would then lead to diffusion of electric vehicles in other parts of the world that maybe didn't innovate that themselves. 
And one of the messages that we're trying to get through in the book is to, if you will, depoliticize some of the, the rhetoric around climate change and dealing with climate change to recognize many of these industries that we're talking about and these new technologies are where future economic growth and job creation are going to come. This is a, this is a natural process within markets um, to have these types of episodic disruptions and, and translations to new technology. Um, these shouldn't be feared. These should be embraced. And I think there could even be some kind of competitive advantage of different nations here. Um, China, in particular, seems to understand that better than we've seen even in the U.S. here in terms of recognizing being a leader in solar, being a leader in battery technology sets them up well for the future. You know, you talked about retrofitting homes and, and businesses and factories and so on to become, well, to, to move away from the use of, of uh, fossil fuels. And, and I'm just wondering, do you have any sense for the investment that, that everyday people would have to make to, to convert their homes? Is that something they can take on themselves or, or do over time and, and help meet that, that 2050 goal? Yeah, and I think absolutely, and a lot of it though, depends sometimes, you know, what region, for example, you're in the United States, um, and, you know, is it a, is it a cold weather, is it a warm weather environment? Um, all of those things come into play when you, you think about kind of the, the personal economics of making these types of transitions. I think the other thing we need to be dress, drastically kind of changing is thinking about building codes and how we think about new building or even when people do renovations what is required of them. Um, and you're seeing some states like California be much more aggressive of even requiring, like, you know, installation of solar panels and the like on homes. That can be a big driver as well here of trying to kind of change that infrastructure. You know, it sounds like, you know, 30 years to 2050 sounds like a lot of time to some people, but really that is a very, very short uh, window here. I always like to point out that, you know, when you buy a home, you often have a 30-year mortgage, you know, associated with that. Um, so, you know, in the life of potentially owning that home, or at least that mortgage, you, you're already to over 2050 at this point. Um, so it, it, again, it's going to take a concerted effort, not just from business, but from the policymakers, from the general public and the like. And, and with the lack of trust that people have in policymakers, how, how likely are they going to be able to um, convince people to, to get on board and, and to set these goals? Well, this is, I think, you know, the million-dollar question, and uh, I wish I had a good answer for you. To how we get <laughs> I'm not well, trying to put you on the spot, Michael, but... I just, no, 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 I think it's the right question to be asking. I, again, one of our hopes with the book is to kind of lay out um, literally hundreds of different mechanisms, different levers, as we call them, that could be pulled. Some of those are, are politically controversial, like putting a price on carbon, though, again, we're very supportive of that. And I would say, you know, almost every economist recommends that as a, as a solution here. There are other levers that can be, um, again, maybe more politically palpable. Um, you think opportunities for job creation through major infrastructure investment. Um, those are things that can hopefully sell in, in different communities for different senators and congresspeople uh, uh, at the end of the day. Um, and it's trying to kind of reframe the debate in a, in a slightly different way than, uh, unfortunately, is typically, typically seen here in the United States. Um, Michael, in, in, uh, did, 
how did you research for this book? Where is there information readily available? Did you, you know, use studies that already exist, or did you have to create some of your own? A, a little bit of both. Um, my co-author Becky Duff uh, is a fabulous researcher and, and really, um, you know, helped helped energize the work that we did in this in this arena. Um, I think what you find, and one of the things that was interesting for us, is that there are definitely certain sectors, like the uh, electric utility sector, that uh, are, are any number of different organizations are tracking what they do, sending out reports and the like. So there's, there's kind of rich data there. Some of these other sectors, um, like agriculture, like industrials, um, there's just been less attention to. Uh, and so it takes a little more digging, uh, a little more fact-gathering to, to be able to paint the picture. But one of our goals through the book was to, to provide that, that big picture view. Um, again, so much about climate change can be so overwhelming. We really wanted to try to break it down in a digestible way so people kind of understand, you know, all the pieces of the puzzle that need to be solved here if we're going to you know, truly try to, address, uh, try to address climate change. How do you envision um, this, this shift from fossil fuels a lot of people have been doing what they call going off the grid by using wind and solar and so on Um, but you were suggesting uh, in the previous segment that that we might have a a different kind of grid yeah i mean i think there's there's always the idea of unplugging right like maybe i have a solar panel on my home and it produces sufficient number of amount of electricity to, to provide my needs I think if we think it on a systems perspective, which is probably the better way to think about it because the opportunities to go off the grid are going to be, be limited. You think about it in urban environments, if you're living in an apartment and the like, you're just not going to have those opportunities. The advantage of a, a smart, integrated, distributed grid, as we're kind of laying out, is that it gives you opportunities to do things like flatten the demand for electricity over the course of the day. So right now what happens is it varies across the day. People are at home in the evening. You're turning the lights on. There's more electrical demand. And the way electric utilities tend to work is they have base loads that are provided, maybe provided by nuclear uh, or the like. And then they're firing up like uh, natural gas uh, generators to meet the demand in those moments when they're higher. If you're able to use battery storage and solar and renewables in combination, you might be able to kind of level off some of that demand. So maybe you charge your vehicle, if you have an electric vehicle, during the evening uh, hours where there's otherwise less electrical demand, uh, like late at night. Um, All of these things create dynamic efficiencies that that gives, gives us some hope here um, that we can, you know, continue to provide reliable electricity that's inexpensive and meets what would be an increased demand load for electrical generation. As as big as the grid, for lack of a better term, is, um, where where do we start? Is this something we can do town by town, village by village, or um, or do we need some massive uh, public works project like the like we did for uh, building the interstate system. Exactly. Yeah, I definitely favor the latter. I think this is going to require kind of a massive um, investment, again, from federal, state, local authorities. Um, the, the nice thing about a lot of these kind of visions here, especially on the electrical grid, 
is the it, it's it's a high fixed cost but actually low variable cost model like solar and wind are in terms of once they're built out the operating cost is is very very low so it really is a challenge of you know like building the interstate highway system um so how do you get the will to put the you know the infrastructure dollars in to make this type of transition and and that almost certainly has to come from the government absolutely absolutely i mean electrical generation is an interesting industry in it that is <laughs> yeah it is it's a market but it's kind of you know uh, a quasi governmental function as well um, here in the state of virginia we're uh, a regu- have regulated utilities um, the price is actually set by a, a government agency and co- you know consolidate in consideration with the electric utilities um, always these questions of you know do you pass the price on to the customer or not I, I, again i think the, the government's going to have to be a, a major player in how we make that type of transition you know, and I, I always smile a little bit when somebody talks about federal, state, and local dollars because at the end of the day, they all come from the same place. Mm-hmm. Us. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, how does, it, how does that make a difference, whether it's federal dollars, state dollars, or, or local dollars being invested in a, in a massive uh, infrastructure changeover? Yeah, I, I think, you know, you think about, again, we're talking a lot about the grid, but the grid, for example, um, with the exception of Texas, the grid typically is something that's an interstate system. Texas is one of the few that has kind of a grid within its state and it has allowed them to do some things around wind that other states uh, have not been able to do. Um, so I think there's there could going to have to be some federal level of investment. Um, but states play a role as well uh, in terms of, um, you see here in the state of Virginia, you know, pushing for offshore wind now and pushing it to be a, a major investment. Um, and then on the local level, you know, there's going to be a thousand decisions needed in terms of, for example, siting uh, solar and wind facilities. Um, that's not a trivial activity. Uh, Wind, of course, has always had some controversy in terms of some people feeling it's unsightly or it's noisy. Uh, but even solar, which I would argue is pretty benign, um, you know, some people would rather see a field of wheat than seeing a field of solar panels out there. And so on a local level, just getting land use approval to turn land into solar uh, projects is going to be uh, it's going to be a, a, a battle, if you will, um, given the amount we're going to need to build out if we're going to truly decarbonize the electrical sector. Well, that that's been um, that's been an issue with the placement of uh, oil rigs and and fracking and drilling for natural gas. You know that 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 issue of where do you put it and how unsightly is it has been around forever is is it possible to just uh, convert those sites for these other purposes yeah i mean i think um you've seen this now with wind for example where farmers are able obviously to put windmills on their their farmland and it doesn't inhibit their ability to continue to grow crops as well similar to kind of how fracking is, you know, been pitched to many uh, farmers and the like. Um, whether a given fracking well could be turned into, let's say, a windmill depends all on the geography and the typology, right? Uh, whether it makes sense to put a windmill in that location given the, um, the wind patterns and the like. Um, but I think that general thinking of 
hey, maybe a lot of this rural land that has been fracked could be, be converted into something like wind or solar, I think is the right way to be thinking about this. Um, what about hydro? Is that something that's... Uh, um, is there room for growth in that, so or the, are we already Should we talk about the, you know, uh, the two original decarbonized electrical sources, which were hydro and also nuclear? Um, hydro, there are obviously still a number of uh, uh, hydroelectric plants uh, around in the, in the United States, some quite large. It's interesting to note that climate change itself is affecting the efficacy of those. So as we have drills in the West, in the southwest, some of those dams, like the Hoover Dam, are becoming less effective at electrical generation because of lower water levels. Um, you know, there's a lot of other environmental damages caused by damming up uh, rivers um, that we don't really see major hydro projects uh, in the United States. Uh, China is still pursuing some, but even there, there's some resistance for kind of continued big hydro projects. And then on nuclear, you know, I, I think, and many have said, like, it should, it should and needs to be part of the, the solution for decarbonization. But the fact of the matter is there just isn't much activity around nuclear energy. If anything, we're retiring nuclear plants uh, and we're not rebuilding them. Um, in fact, I think there's one active nuclear, new nuclear facility being built in the United States right now. And it's for the obvious reasons, the concerns about, um, you know, accidents, the concerns about nuclear waste. Um, so theoretically, yes, it should be part of the solution, but the political reality is it's very hard to site and build these things, uh, and you just don't see much activity in that space. As um, private businesses are, are becoming more involved in, in traveling to space, um, it's, it's still very early in the process, but is, is there a possibility for getting rid of nuclear waste um, by taking it off planet? <laughs> I have to say that's kind of uh, uh, beyond my expertise level there. I could imagine maybe my initial reaction is, is what many people's initial reaction of, boy, if, if you're launching something in the air and you have an accident with nuclear waste, that sounds like a, you know, a terrible, uh, terrible outcome. Um, it is interesting to note that in our book, obviously, we're talking about climate change, and I think there's, you know, some good arguments that this is the the major environmental issue that we're that we're facing right now. It's not to say it's the only environmental issue we're facing. There's questions of regional water droughts and water usage. Um, there's just traditional kind of localized pollutant issues out there. One of the issues you hear a lot about with like batteries is there's an end of life issue. What do you do with all these old batteries? And they tend to have some uh, toxic materials in them. Um, I'm of the mindset that uh, the climate change issue is important enough that we really need to focus on solving that. Not to say we dismiss these other problems, but um, we're going to need to address them at some point as well. But boy, we, we, we have a very short time period here to really address the climate challenge. Well, Michael, now that you've... Uh you know, solve the uh, climate change problem. Um, <laughs> <what's> <laughs> I wish it was so. I wish, I, was, I wish our book could that solve the problem, but <laughs> there's a lot of work to be done. But all kidding aside, what's next for you? 
So it's interesting. I'm actually working on a new book looking at uh, digital technology in the digital age. And uh, so you talk about another kind of major trend right now, the rise of AI and the like. Uh, um, lots of peril associated with that as well. Lots of opportunity from a, from a business and, and market side as well. Um, and then actually there's, there's even some overlap between our efforts to decarbonize and the rise of, of AI and, and digital technologies, whereas something, again, keep coming back to the smart grid, um, that's going to require some pretty sophisticated uh, systems that will probably rely on machine learning and, and AI type approaches uh, to, to make it effective. Um, so there's there's some nice overlap between my work on, on digitization and digital technology and on decarbonization. Well, Michael, I appreciate you spending this time with me this morning. This is an important issue, and it it requires the kind of thoughtfulness that um, you've put into this book. Uh, the book is The Decarbonization Imperative, Transforming the Global Economy by 2050. My guest, Michael Lennox from the uh, University of Virginia Darden School of Business, is a co-author of the book. Um Michael, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you, the book, your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I do. I have a personal website at michaellenox.com, so L-E-N-O-X. But easier thing is just simply do a Google search. The Darden School has, uh, uh, has a page for me, and uh, it has links to a lot of my different work and the like. This project uh, that led to the Decarbonization Imperative book is something uh, at UVA called the Business Innovation and Climate Change Initiative. So if you search that, uh, you'll also find a, a variety of work that we've done uh, in this space, different webinars and different reports that we've done on the topic. Well, Michael, thanks uh, for spending this time with me, and keep up the good work. Well, thank you for the opportunity. All right. Take care. Take care. That was uh, Michael Lennox. He is uh, a professor of business administration at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. He is the co-author of The Decarbonization Imperative, Transforming the Global Economy by 2050. And we'll have uh, more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Armchair Politics is going to hell. Hell, Michigan, that is, and you are invited. On October 27th, Wednesday before Halloween, Armchair Politics will be broadcasting live from 9 a.m. to noon from the Hell Saloon in Hell, Michigan, near Pinckney. This will be our first in-person meeting of the Tom Sumner Program's weekly roundtable armchair politics since the beginning of the pandemic. Join me and roundtable regulars Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right, plus more on Wednesday, October 27, 2021, starting at 9 a.m. at the Hell Saloon. Armchair politics is going to hell, and you can too. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com
the time of summer program.com From the Tom Sumner Show Oh yeah Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hopper. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the back. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. W.H. Weiscarver, a recent guest on the show, has pledged 50% of the proceeds from his book Twilight of Empire from sales between October 1st and October 31st to support the Tom Sumner program. W.H. Weiscarver, a former National Security Advisor and counsel for the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee, pulls no punches, fusing history with political intrigue in Twilight of Empire, the third of four planned novels in the Resurrection Saga series. W.H. 
Wise Carver's book, Twilight of Empire, shows that the U.S. has all the wealth, science, and resources to solve every issue we face today. Twilight of Empire by W.H. Wise Carver is available on Amazon and Apple Books. For more information and to support the Tom Sumner Program, visit whwisecarver.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. I'd like to take you now on wings of song, as it were, and try and help you forget, perhaps for a while, your drab, wretched lives. <laughs> Here's a song all about springtime in general, and in particular about one of the many delightful pastimes that the coming of spring affords us all. Spring is here, a suffering is here. Life is skittles and life is beer. I think the loveliest time of the year is the spring. I do. Don't you? Of course you do. But there's one thing that makes spring complete for me and makes every Sunday a treat for me. All the world seems in tune on a spring afternoon when we're poisoning pigeons in the park. Every Sunday you'll see my sweetheart and me as we poison the pigeons in the park. When they see us coming, the birdies all try and hide. But they still go for peanuts when coated with cyanide. The sun's shining bright, everything seems all right when we're poisoning pigeons in the park. La 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 notoriety and caused much anxiety in the Audubon society with our games. They call it impiety and lack of propriety and quite a variety of unpleasant names. But it's not against any religion to want to dispose of a pigeon. So if Sunday you're free, why don't you come with me and we'll poison the pigeons in the park. And maybe we'll do in a squirrel or two while we're poisoning pigeons in the park. We'll murder them all amid laughter and merriment, except for the few we take home to experiment. My pulse will be quickening with each drop of strychnine we feed to a pigeon. It just takes a smidgen to poison a pigeon in the park. This was another Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Hello, darling. 
This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and you're celebrating Schlocktober with Tom Sumner. Go away from my window. Leave at your own chosen speed. I'm not the one you want, babe. I ain't the one you need. You say you're looking for someone never weak but always strong to protect you and defend you, whether you're right or wrong. Someone to open each and every door. Uh, but it ain't me, babe. No, <laughs> no, no, it ain't me, babe. It ain't me you're looking for, babe. Go lightly from the ledge, babe. Go lightly on the ground. I'm not the one you want, babe. I don't let you down. You say you're looking for someone who will promise never to part, someone to close his eyes for you, someone to close his heart, someone who will die for you and more. Ooh, it ain't me, babe. No, no, no. It ain't me, babe. It ain't me you're looking for, babe. Go melt back into the night, babe. Everything inside is made of stone. There's nothing in here moving. Anyway, I'm not alone. You say you're looking for someone who will pick you up each time you fall, to gather flowers constantly and to come each time you call a lover for your life and nothing more. Hey, ain't me, babe. No, 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 it ain't me, babe. It ain't me you're looking for, babe. I 
today, oh boy. The English army had just won the war. A crowd of people turned away. But I just had to look, having read the Notice I was late. Grab my coat, grab my hat, make the books and seconds flat. By my way, says, and I had a smoke. Somebody spoke, and I went into a dream. Chair Politics is going to hell. Hell, Michigan, that is, and you are invited. On October 27th, Wednesday before Halloween, Armchair Politics will be broadcasting live from 9 a.m. to noon from the Hell Saloon in Hell, Michigan, near Pinckney. This will be our first in-person meeting of the Tom Sumner Program's weekly roundtable armchair politics since the beginning of the pandemic. Join me and roundtable regulars Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right, plus more on Wednesday, October 27, 2021, starting at 9 a.m. at the Hell Saloon. Armchair politics is going to hell, and you can too. 
trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. 